0: All right, good morning, friends. Good morning. Let's uh, flip over to Galatians chapter 2. <clears throat> We're going to start in verse 11 this morning. Uh, by way of introduction, remember Paul is uh, writing to the Galatians, and he is kind of re-establishing the origin and the authority of his apostleship. And he says in there that this Re-establishment, it's not for power's sake, it's not for dominant's sake, but it's so that he can encourage them with the truth. What's happened, if you remember, you have Judaizers, and they've kind of snuck in, he says, to spy out our liberty. If you're a King James person, that phrase, y'all, just kind of makes me snicker every time. But he says, they came in to spy out our liberty, and they want to bring us into bondage. And so people had, were coming, they showed up, and they were essentially saying, look, it's not just enough to believe in Jesus. You also need the works of the law to be righteous or right with God. Right? So Paul is writing to them and saying, here's all this evidence that I am an apostle. Now, today's um, section, today's scripture, uh, there's a lot of great stuff in it, which I realize is like a pastor thing to say, but no, it's, it's like it's packed, so I'm actually, my plan is to go and, and do it twice. So we're going to cover Galatians 2, verse 11 to the end today. And we're going to cover Galatians 2 to the end next Sunday also. This Sunday, uh, I'm going to look at, uh, and we're going to go through what happens with Peter. Some background about Peter, some background about Antioch, some background about Barnabas, and how they kind of end up where they're at, and, and how this um, unfortunate event takes place in, in the church there in Antioch. Uh, next week we'll look at kind of the, more the doctrine behind it because this is, it's one of the most uh, profound, I guess if we can say it that way, doctrinal books that we have. If you notice there in verse chapter 2 and verse 19, this is what we'll focus next week, the doctrine side of it, where he says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So those are super important verses for what our salvation means to us. And this week, as I was, and last week also, as I was kind of looking at this and considering it, I just thought, man, I just, I don't want to have to rush through verse, the, these last section of verses, our, our new identity in Christ, if we could put it that way. But I also just absolutely, I love Peter. Uh, Jesus should probably be my favorite character of the scripture, and I suppose he is. But Peter is definitely the one that I would identify with the most. The one that when I read his shenanigans and all the things that go on, I just go, Man, I can't identify with that. Peter's a really interesting guy in the sense that historically from some of the writings of the church fathers, so the, the generation or two after, uh, after the apostles, right? So you have guys uh, and gals of the, the apostles discipled and you have that. So those people, when they wrote about who Peter was, they say that, that essentially tradition uh, from, the, from the church fathers is that Peter was a pretty big guy. He was a big and a burly guy. And he had a big old beard. And he was just, they called him the giant. Not Andre, but just the giant, right? And he was just known as this big guy. And it's funny because his personality kind of fits that. And we have so much scripture about Peter and what he was like. And, and the, the thing is, he was kind of a man of extremes, right? He, he was a man that had these incredible victories and revelations. And he, had a, he was a, a man that had some pretty substantial failures, right? You have Peter, for example, that is when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And the the apostles answer, they say, well, some say you're Jeremiah, and some say you're Elisha back from the dead, you know, these different things. And he says, well, who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. And, and, And Jesus says back to him, he says, he goes, you're right. I'm paraphrasing. He says, you're right. He says, flesh and blood didn't show that to you, my Father, which is in heaven, showed that to you. Meaning, you didn't come up with that on your own. You didn't, you didn't use your understanding, your intellect, to come to this conclusion. My Father revealed that to you. So he was a man of revelation. And then Jesus says, and, and from what's going to happen now is that eventually, I'm going to go and I'm going to get captured, and the Jews are going to take me, and they're going to crucify me. I'm going to die, and three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. And it's Peter that grabs him. And the, the verb there in the Greek is not like, it's, uh, you know, we talked about kataligeo, to come alongside someone and kind of encourage them. That's not what he does. The, the word there in, for Peter, he's he grabbed Jesus. The implication is like shook him. And so he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then in the next sentence, he's grabbing the Lord and he says, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus says, you only care about the things of men. Get behind me, Satan. So it's like, from, I mean, can you imagine the Jesus being like, my father has given you incredible revelation. Now get behind me, Satan. <laughs> These, I mean, imagine the high heights. If there's anything that knocks you down, you know, a notch with the fellas, you look around at the other part. That's, oh, oh, got some revelation from the father. Now I'm Satan, you know. but, just <laughs> but That's Peter, Right. You have have Jesus who comes to Peter and says, follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men. And and Peter's like all in. Two chapters later, he's fishing. And Jesus has to tell him again, no, come follow me. You have him when he walks on the water, right? Where he says, Lord, if it's you, please beckon to me, and uh, tell me, and I'll come to you on the water. Jesus says, hey, come out, it's me. He walks on the water. He's the only apostle that did, that we know of. He walks on the water. And it's fascinating because he's evidently within reach of Jesus, right? Because he begins to sink and Jesus grabs him. So I don't either Jesus like teleported to him or he was already there. We don't, we don't know which one it was. But here's this guy who, who is walking on the water, right in the center of the will of God. And it says, when, it, when he began to sink, it says it says that he saw the wind and the waves. So here's this, this, this man of Revelation. This man who's doing the impossible, but when he was faced with the physical reality of what he was engaged in, even though it was being overcome by supernatural reality, he sunk. And yet he has the wherewithal to say, Lord, save me, and then he's saved. Jesus picks him up and brings him back to the boat. You have Peter. You know, all the disciples said, no, I'll never... You know, I'll never deny you. I'll never do that. That'll never happen. But as Peter seems to be the one that in all the Gospels is very, he's kind of the first one. I would never deny you, Jesus. I would never do that, right? And then it's Peter, the one who ends up denying him three times. Uh, well, there were bystanders, but specifically to uh, a female slave that just keeps saying, hey, weren't you with him? No, I'm, you have the same, you have the same, uh, 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 what's the word? Accent. You have the same accent as he did. You're from Galilee too. No, you knew that guy. You know, and it says that he, he cursed. He says, I don't know the man. The idea is that he, like, let me be damned if I knew, if I knew this guy. Like, just this kind of radical, right? So this, these, these crazy, crazy extremes that Peter went. You have Peter who, uh, you know, he, he, uh, he goes with Jesus, right? He, he goes with Jesus to the, to the uh, Garden of Gethsemane and when uh, Judas and the, the Roman cohort and the people from the temple show up, the Pharisees from the temple show up and, and some of the Sadducees and so forth. It's Peter who alone, right? They have two swords. And Peter pulls out his one sword and tries to hack... I, I, I assume he tried to hack off Malchus' head uh, only because I don't think he was making a surgical strike just for the ear. That seems a little odd to me, like he's some sort of like dueling ninja or something. But he pulls his sword out. But think about this. A a Roman cohort is at least 40 soldiers. And, And they're armored. And they have swords. And they have shields. And they're coming to get Jesus. And then you have the temple guards. And you have the Pharisees. And you have the Sadducees. It's literally all the weight of every authority that exists in the realm of Jerusalem. And it's in front of that that Peter pulls a sword out. And says, I'm going to war. I mean, you, you, you can only, I, w- I, I mean, in my mind, you can only conclude that he was going to go out fighting. He was going to die protecting Jesus. Because why else do you pull out a sword in front of 60, 80 armed people? Because you're protecting him. So he's, he's this incredible guy, right? He's got these, these, these convictions and these high highs, and he's got tremendous failures. And that's kind of what we read about today. We read about Paul is going to address something that is going on. It started in Jerusalem and it comes to Antioch and then it infects Peter and then it infects all the Jews in Antioch and then it infects even Barnabas. So I just want to look at who are these people? What's going on in Antioch? What can we learn from that? And what caused Peter to kind of go into the state that he was that ends up snowballing and stumbling so many folks? So, if you look at uh, Galatians chapter two and verse eleven, <clears throat> which just jumps right into the thought here, it says, "When Cephas, uh, Cephas is Peter. If you're wondering why does he call it get called Cephas sometimes and Peter others, Cephas is just the Aramaic translation of his name. And if you go, if if I've looked up quite a few different resources trying to find out why it gets intertwined so much, and I've never found something that was satisfying. So, if you do, uh, let me know." When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So that's, pretty, that's pretty substantial, isn't it? He says, "For Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by... Their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. But by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one is justified. So what happens here, and we're going to talk about and look at some background on all these different events, but what happens here, Peter is in Antioch and Paul is in Antioch, and in a general assembly, because of the way it's written here, it says that when he says, I withstood him in front of them all, the idea is there's no article before all, so the idea is every believer. This isn't something that he addressed with the, in front of the other elders there in Antioch. It wasn't kind of a private meeting. It literally is the idea that he stands up in, in the area, uh, you know, or in, in, in the, the churches. Maybe it was a group church meeting, because remember, they're, they're meeting home churches. Church buildings, for the most part, like having buying land and all that. You don't really read about that until about 250 AD, 300 AD. Uh, so this is probably mostly home churches. Maybe it was a collection of them. We, we don't know exactly. But at some point, the two of them are together at a meeting, and Paul stands up, and it says that he withstood him to the face. And that's the idea. There is exactly that. That he he it, it's an interesting idea because it's the same word that's used by um, Caesars and by generals in the Roman army to effect a retreat. Uh, And so it's the idea that you're resisting something that's coming at you. And so the the idea is that essentially Paul perceived this thing that Peter was doing as a threat. And it was a threat, right? Because the end result is that the Jews pull away from the Gentiles as a collective in Antioch. And so Paul sees it as such a threat to the gospel. And because it's so widespread that he's willing to stand up and to say, you can't do this. You're condemned. In other words, you are speaking untruth. You're doing things that are untrue, and there's a judgment against that. And Peter's commi- uh, communi- uh, excuse me, communicating that to Peter and to the people around him. We don't have time, but I suppose there's a, there's a good application there that what do we do when someone confronts us? What do we do with that? You know, Peter. what if Peter had said, you can't talk to me that way, Paul. I, you know what? You don't know why I did what I did. I don't deserve this. You should have talked to me in private. When people talk to us about difficult things, do we make a million excuses of why it's invalid of what they said? Or do we listen and take it to heart? Because it's important that we listen. And it's fine if you listen and consider and then dismiss because it's invalid. But we always want to be open when someone uh, who, who hopefully we trust and, and knows the word can come to us and say, hey, this is... This is causing destruction. But anyway, so in this case, Paul says, "This, you know, I'm going to do this. <clears throat> I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to talk to him in front of everyone. And here's how it's going to go down." So I want to look at how uh, how Antioch starts. So if you flip over to Acts chapter ten, while you're flipping there, it's important to remember, and we touched on this. Uh, we've touched on this a few times. It's important to remember that there is a, a substantial cultural gap between Jews and everybody else. So think of it this way. In about, from about 800 years, before Jesus shows up, darn near every country that passed by Israel dominated them. And, and dominated them in the sense of took their land, salted their, their farmlands, or, or took all their trees. They took their, their people, slaves, raped, pillaged the whole nine. So the general consensus of the Jew regarding the Gentile at this point was that there is no way that God would have anything to do with Gentiles. That they are fuel for the fires of hell. And that was, in a sense, confirmed by the Gentiles in the way that, they were, that the Jews were treated by the Gentiles. It's interestingly enough, because in what we read, this idea that certain men came from James, and then that's when, G- or when uh, Peter retracts from having, uh, uh, having eaten with them. And the word they're eaten is not just that they ate food together, it's the idea of deep fellowship. Uh, some people, some scholars think it's, a, it's actually probably a reference from like the Lord's Supper. Because uh, in, in, in our churches, mostly the Lord's Supper is kind of part of a church service, whereas uh, history tells us in the early church that the, the um, communion was really kind of like this ending or central portion of a meal that the church would have together. So imagine that we had like our, our lunch after church one day, right? And we were all in there and we we're all eating, and then we, somebody stood up and said, hey, okay, now it's gonna take, we're going to take communion and it would be part of this meal that they would have together, this time of remembrance. So it's not just that Peter wouldn't go out to lunch with Gentiles. It's probably more the idea that there's a, almost a complete removal of fellowship. It's also in the, un, the imperfect tense, which means he didn't just cut it off. These people come from James, and more and more and more, Peter retreats from different activities with the Gentiles. All right? And that causes the other Jews that are there, and that causes also... Uh, Barnabas, that's there, but in the in the dynamic of what's happening, you have essentially this the Jews and the the religious system that they have of the day, which was not true Judaism. I'm not saying there weren't true Jews. Okay, I'm not saying there weren't faithful Jews in Jesus' day. What I'm saying is the system that they had in the temple was not okay. It was it was corrupt and it was political. And had, there were a lot of different things that play, like money and power with the, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees trying to get each other killed and garner favor with the Roman government and all this. So that's what's all you know, kind of going on in their day at this time. The idea that a Jew can't eat with a Gentile is never in Levitical law. It's not in there anywhere. As a matter of fact, if you read through Levitical law in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, the repeating of the law when they're about to go into the land... The, the Gentiles were allowed to be at feasts and celebrate feasts. Gentiles could bring sacrifices. They just couldn't come into where the sacrifices were done. So there were certain areas that Gentiles weren't allowed. But if you look like, for example, the prophecies from Isaiah and different prophets, the purpose of, of Israel was never to be a holy compound that was tight within itself. It was always that they were supposed to be a light to the nations. Now, Jesus tells us, you're the light of the world, right? You're a city set on a hill to the church. But that same uh, charge, that, that same example, that same desire from God was for the Jews also. They, weren't, they were never supposed to be this like pseudo-holy people, self-righteous people that told everybody else to pound sand that they alone had God. It was always supposed to be a light. They were supposed to travel through, and yes, there was taking of the land. Yes, there was genocide. And that's a whole other story of why that happened. But the the point was that once they were in the land, they were supposed to welcome foreigners. They were supposed to bring them in and treat them well. You weren't allowed to to mistreat foreigners. You weren't allowed to take advantage of foreigners. You had to pay foreigners well. There was a bunch of laws that were in there. The idea that you couldn't eat with a Gentile, it stemmed from, it didn't actually, it didn't even come into being until the Hellenistic period. And we'll talk about that uh, in a second. But in the law, you had dietary laws, right? So the other nations around Israel ate things that Israel was not allowed to eat. So realistically, there wasn't a, you probably could not go over to like a Gentile's house for dinner because you would be eating things that were not kosher. So in that sense, no, you couldn't go eat what the Gentiles were going to eat. You couldn't go eat meat that was sacrificed to idols or something like that. But it doesn't mean that they weren't welcome at your table. In the Hellenistic period, so the Hellenistic period is right around 350 uh, B.C. to about 40 or 20 B.C. So it's when Greek t- Greece took over the world, basically, right? When you have Greek culture that's kind of manifesting over the whole world, the known world. Not here, obviously, but the known world. So there was a group of people that rose up at about 250, 260 B.C., they essentially began to take a very conservative approach to the Torah, and they begin to make commentaries of the Torah. They're not called commentaries, but they begin to make commentary on the Torah. These people were called the Pharisees. Sounds familiar, right? So the Pharisees were created, they, they banded together as essentially a group to try to stop, to try to stop this tidal wave of sensuality from Greek culture. They were trying to bring the Jews back into, if you will, obedience and understanding of what the Torah is and what the law is. Now we know what they became, right? They became a political group. They became uh, essentially a power among Israel, you know, in their their similar two-party system for religious purposes of Sadducees and, and Pharisees. But it's in that time is where you first see a. The law, which wasn't a Levitical or a Deuteronomy law, you see that you can't eat with Gentiles. As As a matter of fact, as a side note, in Deuteronomy 21, we're told, not of the nations that they conquered, but of nations beyond the nations they conquered, that you could take a wife from Gentile nations. So there was never like this idea that you had to be separate from Gentiles. That came much later. And then it was, in a sense, supported by Gentiles because they treated Jews so poorly that for 800 years, they get, in, eight, in the first 800 years before Jesus, Israel only had 70 years of self-governance. So 730 years of being told what to do all the time by somebody else and only 70 years of self-governance. So I bring all that up because that's where Jesus came to. You know, Racial disparities don't die easy, do they? Things, Ideologies about other races don't die easy, do they? We see that in our country all the time. So we we got to, I think, in a sense, cut some the Jews a little bit of slack here. Not, not say what they're doing is okay, but we at least can't be surprised as to why when all these people start saying Gentiles can be saved, they're like, no, <laughs> no, no, no. That's crazy talk. If you... Just imagine, if you can, someone in your mind that oppressed, you know, a group of people that oppressed you, oppressed your parents, oppressed their parents, and 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 their parents. And not just oppressed, like called you names or made fun of you on the school bus, killed your children, salted your fields so you couldn't grow crops, stole all your woods so you couldn't build houses. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And some Gentiles go, and we get to go to heaven too. That'd be pretty hard, wouldn't it? So that's what's happening. That's the dynamic that's going on in the Middle East when the gospel comes on the scene. So in Acts chapter 10, this is where you first start to see this, uh, or excuse me, Acts chapter 11, you first start to see this movement of God among the Gentiles. And this is how it happens. Verse 19, 11-19. Now those who had been uh, scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. So that you, you have the church is born, 3,000 people get saved, the church is growing, the apostles are doing all this awesome stuff, they're preaching Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead, people are excited, and then Stephen is slain. Right? Stephen is stoned to death by other religious leaders that disagree with Christianity, right? So then a, a boldness comes out and a persecution comes out and a vast majority of Christians begin to leave Jerusalem and, and run for their lives. But the majority of those people, they're only talking to other Jews, right? Because they have this whole history, millennia, a millennia of history of why you would never talk to a Gentile. So they're going, and they're only talking to Jews. They're only giving the gospel to Jews. But check it out. Verse uh, 20. Some of them, however, these wild and crazy ones, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, you know those guys, they went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So for the first time, you have this Gentile group. All of a sudden, they're getting saved. Now, they're not getting saved out of a, a, a kind of faulty, well, a bankrupt version of a true religious system like Judaism, right? They're not getting saved out of like, that kind of religion. They're getting saved out of Greek and Roman polytheism, right? And, and, and Which is significantly different. Because over here you have it like that very conservative and kind of this somber. It wasn't supposed to be somber, but it became the somber sacrifice and all these different things that they would do out of religiosity. And Paul tells us exactly their heart. He says the Jews did not attain righteousness with God because they look for their righteousness through their own self by obeying the law. They look to establish their own righteousness. That phraseology speaks volumes. They felt that they were righteous because of what they did. Does that make sense? And because of their genetic roots. They said, we're sons of Abraham. That makes us right with God, and we do the law, and so we're right with God. So they failed to find righteousness with God because they tried to establish it themselves. So then you have this whole other group of people. They're starting to get saved, but they're coming out of, like, uh, worshipping Ishtar, uh, worshipping Zeus, Right, all these other uh, polytheistic gods, Jupiter, right? All these different gods, which primarily were worshipped by the sacrifice of meat, temple prostitutes, and pedophilia. Okay, so that's their roots, and that and then that, and that roots had been for generations. So what happens in Antioch is you get this kind of these people coming out of a, a bankrupt Judaism. I'm not saying that they themselves weren't gen, weren't genuine, but the system wasn't. And then you get these guys just coming out of like crazy town, you know, sensual crazy town, and now they're going to church together. And just think about that for a second. Think about like, last week, you went and hooked up with a temple prostitute and dropped some meat off at Jupiter's temple. This week, you're here to sing some Hebrew hymns. Think of the crazy, like, you're like whoa, whoa, whoa. where are the prostitutes? Oh, there aren't any. So, how do we praise Jesus then? Oh, you don't want to. You don't want meat from me. You don't want well, so what do I do? Oh, I just sing to him? I just learn about him? Okay, this is weird. I don't understand this. And then you have all the Jews that are like, You've been with a prostitute? Are you kidding me? Shouldn't you be like stoned to death? What's happening here? So that's what's going on in Antioch. It's like it's it's a true miracle. It's just something that's incredible. So this is who they send. In verse 22, it says, News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw that the grace of God, excuse me, he, he, he saw what the grace of God had done. He was glad and he encouraged them to remain to, true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. So flip back to to Galatians, if you will. So Antioch is started because these refugees basically running for their lives from Jews that are, religious Jews that are persecuting them. It's not the Roman government yet. The Roman government doesn't care about Christians yet because they, they believe them to be a sect of Israel, which is an approved state religion. You were allowed to be Israeli in the Roman government. So Christianity to the Romans is just another offshoot of, of, uh, of, of Ju- uh, Judaism. But the religious Jews, they're not having it. They're not having this Jesus talk. They kill Stephen. So all these people go out. A couple people just get wild enough to talk to Gentiles, tell them about Jesus. They get saved, and this church starts in Antioch. So whether it's traveling or whatever it is, the, kind of the mothership in Jerusalem, they hear about what's going on in Antioch, and they're like, whoa, Gentiles getting saved? This is crazy talk. We're sending Barnabas. We've got to find out what's going on here. Now remember Barnabas, his real name I believe is Joseph. He's from Cyprus. His first mention, he's selling land in the in uh, when Ananias and Sapphira are slain. He was also someone who's selling land and giving the money to help basically the three thousand people to get saved to help establish that church. He's also a Levite, so this is an interesting thing that this Levite that owns this land. But anyway, so he. He earns the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So here's Barnabas. He's known to be just an encourager of the brethren, right? Come alongside. Come with me. Come with me and, and, and let's go serve Jesus together. Let's, let's be done with sin together. You know, a real encourager. That's who Barnabas is. So Barnabas shows up, and this is some of my favorite commentary in the whole Bible, because he just shows up and he's like, this is nothing but God's grace. What's going down here?" is nothing but the fact that God has favor for human beings and he loves them. Because this is crazy. I mean, I cannot even imagine what their church services would have been like. Having to learn all that. If you didn't grow up in a Christian home or you got saved outside of Christianity, think of all the stuff you had to learn. You know, all the things that you're like, oh, really? We don't do that? Oh, okay. Why not? (laughs) You know? That's what it would have been like. And all the Jews that are having to leave all this history behind. Everything that they've been raised with. You can see that in interviews in the Middle East now. You can go on to YouTube now and you can see some, not all. A lot of Palestinians just want to live in peace. So I'm not at all saying that. But when you get into some of the radical areas around, you know, uh, uh, around Israel and, and some of the countries and the, and the uh, ideologies, they're raising their children to be like, someday you're going to grow up and kill Israelis. And it was the same then. I mean, just radical, radical conflict. And now they're getting saved in the same place. And so Barnabas shows up, and he's like, dude, this is God's grace. God is doing this great work here. Then he decides, I need to go get Paul. Who knows? Maybe he decided, we need a doctrine teacher here, right? He's the son of encouragement. He's the guy that's going to come by your side and say, get up, dust yourself off. Everything's going to be okay. God loves you. But we need, we need a Paul. We need a guy who's going to come in here and say, this is how salvation works. This is how church works. This is, how, this is what God is doing. So he goes and he gets Paul. So that is how Antioch starts. So maybe you know, the more we learn and we go, wow, okay, so Barnabas got taken away. He was there. He appreciated what God was doing among them. He embraced the Gentiles. So this thing that Peter does, it gets so deep, it gets so intense that Barnabas, now starts pulling away from the people that he loves and that he wants to take care of. And it's all over a law that's not even in the Torah anywhere. And in fact, it's the opposite of what God wanted for Israel. So you can see just literally millennia of things being twisted, of just it being looked at wrong, error that just got so deep into human beings. Error, that the, the, even to post-Judaism, is, is still re, reaping havoc, right? So what happens? So Peter is there, and, uh, and, and the trigger for him, or what begins to happen, is that men come from James. So there's a wide debate. Did they come from James, or did they come from Jerusalem? And some people would say, well, they couldn't have come from James because it's false. It's not true. What they're saying is not true, that you need to be circumcised to be saved, that you need to pull away from the Gentiles, you can't eat with them. He said, you know, all this. That's not true doctrine, right? So so some people would say there's no way that they were from James. they just They were from James' church. Whereas other people say, well, the Greek here is very emphatic. These people came from James, the Lord's brother, the apostle. James, half-brother. So I'm going to leave it for you to decide. That doesn't really necessarily matter in the end, but I will say this. If you flip back real quick to Acts 21, this is one of the great things about the book of Acts. You can see it's almost like the the behind-the-scenes stuff that's going on in the church. In Acts chapter 21, this is the rub. This is the rub that Paul is up against. So this is Luke writing... In Acts 21, it's Luke writing about his journey with Paul. That's why he's saying we. He says, When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. So it's James and all the elders. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had uh, done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. So let's stop there for a second. So Paul goes to Jerusalem. This is is years, years later. Paul goes to Jerusalem, and he says, and this is this is after the Jerusalem Council. This is after Acts 15. This is after they established that, that Gentiles don't have to follow the law. This is after they established that that Gentiles can be saved, all of that, right? So they show up in Jerusalem. They meet James and the elders. And they say to them, the James and the elders say to them, you see, brother, thousands of Jews have gotten saved and they're all zealous for the law. Well, this is exactly what we're talking about, right? They're people that have trusted in Christ, but they still have a zeal for the law. A burning, the word there is a, a, is a burning The idea of a burning, it's actually where the the Mormons get their idea. It's actually a burning in the chest is the idea. So they have a zeal, a burn, a fire for the law. He goes on there and he says, um, verse 21, They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live uh, according, according to customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. It's a Nazarite vow, most likely. It doesn't say it in the passage, but it's most likely a Nazarite vow based on their haircuts. He says, Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. That's all has to do with, with um, a Nazarite vow. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. James and the elders. Paul shows up. James says, "We got a problem. There are thousands of Jews that have been saved here in Jerusalem. They're all very zealous for the law. So here's, and, and they, they've heard a rumor that you're telling Jews to get saved. That they don't have to follow the law anymore. And that they don't have to circumcise their children anymore. What's the major issue of Galatians? Circumcising your children. What's Paul's stance on that? You don't do that anymore. You don't have to do that anymore. It's not something you have to do. You don't have to follow the law for righteousness. So James says because we have these, these believers and because they've heard that you're teaching this, here's what we need you to do we need you to pony up for these four guys haircuts for their, to have their hair shaved for a Nazarite vow, which is directly out of Levitical law. We need you to go and pay for them, go into the temple, do their, do the cleansing rites at the temple just like they do, pay for their haircuts, and then everyone will know that you don't actually teach that you have to follow the law anymore. Isn't that wild? Am I saying that James is is a heretic? Am I saying that James is not an apostle? No. I would just put forward that even the apostles had things to learn. You can decide whether or, not, whether or not these men came from James. It seems pretty clear they did. Now that's scary for us and I understand why it's scary for us. But the reality is Peter gets a big talking to here. James has to learn some things. Thomas has to learn some things. So I'm not trying to say anything weird. Please don't go somewhere weird with this. and this. Oh, you're saying that the apostles didn't get along. No, I'm saying they had things to learn. And I'm saying that the, the, the church, by the grace of God, overcame incredible difficulties by His grace. But so the other, I think, big piece of evidence to this is that when these guys show up, if they were of no report, why would Peter listen to them? Why, it tells us why exactly he did what they said to do, because he was afraid. It was fear that caused him to retract. What was he afraid of? The men that came from James. People of the Circumcision Party—that term, Circumcision Party or group—it happens multiple times in Acts. They were Christians. They were zealous for the law. They were wrong. They got saved, and then they had bad doctrine. That's what happened. And that bad doctrine began to extend to all these different churches in the Gentile world, and then it became a division. That's what happened. So we don't have to run away and say, "Oh no, you know this." Our faith—no, our faith isn't rocked in the least. Our faith is strengthened because God is so powerful, he was able to work through that. James, in the end, is, history tells us, or tradition, he was thrown off the top of the temple. It's like a 900-foot drop at the location he was thrown off at. And he was, he was thrown off because he was a follower of Jesus and believed in the grace of God. And it was, it was uh, as my understanding, religious Jews that chucked him off there. So we don't, we don't know what happens after this point. There's no follow-up. It would have been nice, right? Like a second Galatians, like, hey, so glad Peter. <laughs> we don't have that. But what we do know is there's this wild contention, and it occurs because of pressure from people that had bad doctrine. And the doctrine was you have to do works to stay saved. You have to do works to be right with God. And that's why it's so important that we... we, we Look at these things and consider these things, and, and 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 we're guarded. That's why doctrine is important. We're guarded. Because if we, believe, if we begin to say, oh, it takes, it takes believing in Jesus and being baptized or the King James Bible or having a devotional life or, or, or obedience to Christ at all times, as soon as we fill in things that it takes to be saved, we have now created a standard that is impossible to fill and we cannot do it. And we make God a debtor because we say, I got baptized, really baptized, full immersion, no sprinkling for me. I desert, you owe me salvation now. I read the King James, you owe me salvation now. I have a regular devotional life. Unlike all these other Christians that are so milk toast, I deserve salvation now. This is so important. So Paul says, he says, look, it was worth it. I withstood him to the face. And I did it in the general assembly. The second part, because we'll talk more of the doctrine next week. Fear. Think about this. The same dude who pulls a sword out and is going to fight a cohort of Roman soldiers with a centurion. The same guy who got in the boat trip, got in the boat again and again after and again after, like it being swamped by waves, or you know having to catch fish after fishing all night and getting nothing. And you know think of all the times that he endured, all the times you know that he he uh, has the dialogue with Jesus and about uh, his love for Christ, I mean, endured that. That's one of the most brutal dialogues. You know, when when Jesus is on the beach with Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? There's something that doesn't come through in the English. It's actually really important. Because Jesus asked Peter, he says, do you love me? Do you agape me? Do you have a moral supreme love for me? And when Peter responds, he says, Lord, I phileo you like when we get our city of Philadelphia, he's, what he says to Jesus, I love you, I'm fond of you like a brother, is what he's saying. So Jesus says, do you have an absolute moral love for me above everything? And Peter can't reciprocate it. He's actually honest. And he says, I'm fond of you. And so Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? And, and Peter says, Lord, you know. You know, I, I, I phileo you. I'm, I'm fond of you like a brother. And then the third time, when he's grieved, Jesus says, do you phileo me? In other words, he's challenging that He says, Peter, are you, are you even fond of me? Do you have that in your heart? And then uh, that's why it says Peter was grieved because it wasn't just because like, oh, three times I'm getting a little worn out here. The idea is Jesus pointing out this radical flaw in his life where he's saying, do you have a fondness for me? And that's why his response is, Lord, you know everything. You know everything. You know I'm fond of you. What a humbling. What a just, I mean, what an incredible, difficult thing to go through with the Lord. And he prevails. And then you see this where Jesus says, hey, you know, f- feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. You know, the, the, this, this reestablishment as an apostle, this encouragement that you're still with me, that I'm still with you. And it just, it's just incredible. This is who Peter is. But over and over again, what's the one thing and like in all his struggles where he, that, that just gets him? Well, I shouldn't say all because I don't know that. In a lot of struggles that we read about in the New Testament, fear. Fear is a crazy thing because it can, be, it can come from all sorts of things. We can have fear of missing out, right? Uh, you know, a lot of times that, that can be a big high school or junior high temptation and, and on into our adulthood. That we fear that we're gonna miss out with our friends, that our friends are gonna call us. And, and that's that's really the fear that leads to depression through social media, right? That's why social media can be, I'm not saying it has to be, so destructive because we, we look at everybody else's life and then we begin to experience fear because well, my life isn't like that. I'm not jet skiing in Maui, you know, my family's not perfect. I don't take pictures of my devotion with the perfect cappuccino somehow and the you know my Bible's open. I don't have that life. I'm missing out. They're not missing out, but I'm missing out, right? And it generates a fear and anxiety. I I need to have that. And then when we don't realize that, the more we 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 imbibe of the social media, then we, we get depressed. We're convinced that we're missing out. We can have fear of we can have financial fear. What's gonna happen to the dollar? Is Russia and South America and China are they gonna are they gonna bind together and sink the dollar? Is the yen going to take over? <laughs> what, what's going to happen? Is, are, are we going to have to go to the euro? We, you know, we can have medical fear. Am I going to die? Am I going to be crippled? Am I going to? You know, what's going to happen with my body? We can have all sorts of fears, can't we? The interesting thing about fear is that, by definition, fear is is considering something that may happen in the future. And then responding to it in, in that fearful and that in that anxious way, I could get sick, I could lose my money, I could lose my house, I I could I could I could I could, and so we, we fear that. And fear, and then in this case, it's social fear. Maybe maybe tied in with the religious fear, but with the we don't have time to go over it. But I encourage you if you if you like if you like language. The words that Paul is using here when he calls them hypocrites. It means to speak under, and it literally means to speak under. It's the same word that would be used in society for actors. So, for example, if it were like a Friday night in, in you know, the Roman colonies, you would, might say, if you had you know, a, a denarii laying around or whatever, you could say, hey, do you want to go see the hypocrites? And you were just saying, let's go see the actors. Let's go see the people that wear masks. So the idea that Paul, when he says the, the word there for hypocrisy is, is speaking from under a mask so he's, just, he's declaring that these, these people, they don't actually believe what they're doing. Peter doesn't actually believe what they're doing. Remember, it's Peter that goes to Cornelius' house. It's Peter that's, that goes into a trance on the top of his roof and God lowers down a sheet three times and says, kill and eat. And the interesting thing is, what does Peter say to God when God says, kill and eat? He says, not so, Lord, because nothing unclean has ever entered into my mouth. But way back in John, it tells us that, God de- that Jesus declared all foods clean. But now, decades later, Peter's on his house going, I do not eat things that aren't kosher. I stick to the dietary law. And God tells him, stop declaring unclean, ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, what I have declared to be clean. And it's true for the food, and it's true for the Gentile. Because at that moment that Cornelius' servant shows up and says, my master sent you, sent me to you to come preach the gospel. And he goes to this, to this Gentile home of the centurion and he says, I'm not supposed to be in here, but clearly God has led me here, so I'm going to preach the gospel to you. And he observes them get saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, and speak in tongues. That's this Peter. So it's like, Fear in Peter, in this case, it took over years of experience. It took over years of doctrinal understanding that had been given. You would think if you had had supernatural visions where God personally spoke to you and said, go chill with Gentiles, go to their homes, That when somebody showed up from James and said, whoa, what are you doing? You would have been like, oh, funny story, pound sand. Because God's called me to do this. But in this case, the social pressure brings him to such a place where the word there, it's in the imperfect tense, he slowly, slowly pulls away from the Gentiles and creates this radical split. A split that goes to all the Jews in the area and then even Barnabas. So how do we deal with fear? Because we're not motivated by fear, right? It's kind of, you know, one of my big pet peeves, and it's, it's really not worth anything. But it, for some reason, it really bothers me, and it doesn't matter because it's just me, so don't take that to heart, but people will say things like, oh, I could never do that. I could never do that. And the thing is, it's a profound lie from Satan. I mean, you might say, I could never fly to the sun. And you're like, oh, okay. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe in the afterlife he can fly to the sun. But when you're talking about just things, God's call in our life, when we say, I could never do that, what we're saying is, the Spirit could never empower me to do that. God could never strengthen me to do that. I could never walk through that. Really, what we're saying is, Jesus, you're weak, and so is your Spirit. And I understand that a lot of times it's just an expression because someone might be talking about something radical and like, you know somebody's, somebody's a missionary in some far-off poor country and we go, I could never do that. But the reality is, yes, you could. And you could do it with joy. And you could do it with peace. And you could do it with uh, a full confidence in the Holy Spirit because that's how powerful God is. So when we deal with fear, number one, we have to kind of break the cycle of panic. So something comes in, right? Some thought comes into my mind. Some fear thought. And whatever it is, uh, I, I could die, someone close to me could die, I could be financially uh, destitute. Real, real grief, real issues, right? So these are real problems. As soon as that comes in, I, I have to deal with it. As soon as I realize I'm having the thought, right? Because we have to realize we're having the thought first. Because sometimes, has that happened to you? Where you're like sitting somewhere, you're entertaining some thought, and then ah, you're like, Five minutes into it and you go, oh, you realize, like it comes to you. Like, oh, I'm entertaining. This thought's not of Jesus. This is not of God. This is not what, he's, what his word says. It's in the moment that we realize that. Oh, I'm walking in fear right now. I'm giving credence to fear right now. I'm making a plan and a response of something that may happen right now. Instead, I need to speak truth to that. I need to think about what's actually true in the moment. You know what? If, if, if I become financially destitute, if the dollar tanks tomorrow and we go into some radical depression and they, they double all the, you know, the guards on the, the San Francisco Bridge and whatnot because people kill themselves and they run out of money, you know, all the things that are good, the chaos that could you know, ensue from that, we're thinking about our children, we're thinking about you know, all these things. And these are very real possibilities in our world, right? We have to exercise faith. We don't want to let that kind of fear take away our whole life experience. The whole truth of the word. That's what happened to Peter and Barnabas. Guys that were there from the beginning. Guys that were invested. Guys that knew the power of God. Intimately experienced it. Peter had said to a man, stand up and walk. And he healed him. Well, the, the Spirit healed him. But he was, he was a conduit for the power of the Spirit. Is the same guy who... who, who who saw Gentiles get saved, the same guy who God said, I'm going to save these guys. You're going to get sent to these guys. I'm doing a great work in these guys. Make sure you go to this guy's house. Make sure you go into his house. The same Peter because of fear. Fear of who? Humans. Pesky humans. They were just getting it wrong. And so he he divides a whole church over it. So as soon as we have the thought, as soon as we recognize this is not a thought of faith. Because faith is never going to say, I, I could never do that. Real faith, I think, says, like the man with the demon-possessed son, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I really believe that for many of us, that's where we have to start. My, my, I, that's where I have to start. Lord, intellectually, I understand that you could get me through catastrophic fiscal events in my life. Real, intellectually, I understand that you could get me through catastrophic uh, death in my life of a loved one or something. But I don't feel like it. Right? So in that moment, I, I just have to confess that. Lord, I believe. But help my unbelief. Lord, I'm inviting you in to make a difference in my life. See see the difference? One is I have a thought. I spiral on the thought. I I just embrace all the fear. I suck it in. My chest gets tight. I don't know what I'm going to do. I freak out. I try to bring other people into that sphere of fear. And like, oh, look look at all this legitimate fear that I have. And then I spiral and I panic. And then I have to get like either some weed, some liquor, or like a bunch of ice cream and Netflix, right? I have to deal with it somehow. Where instead, as soon as I realize I'm having the thought, I have to, this, it's a decision that you can make, that I can make. And I say, no, 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 no. I can do that in Christ. I can survive that. God can work in my life. I'll never end up destitute of spirit. I'll never end up forsaken. What did God tell me to do? He told me to not worry about tomorrow. It's got enough evil of its own. I love that saying. What's tomorrow going to be like? Evil. Okay? Just let you know. Tomorrow is going to be evil. Because we live in an evil world with evil people like us that do evil things and say things. And all. So tomorrow, what's it going to be like? It's going to be evil. You and I, though, don't have to be worried about that. And there might be some good that we experience tomorrow. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But it's not up to us to worry about it. Because Jesus is going to be the same tomorrow, right? The, the people that he's saying don't worry about tomorrow, it's enough evil over its own, these are people that are just trying to get enough calories in one day. That's who they are. Their whole life struggle is trying to get enough food for that day on a known global scale, other than a few rich folks. That's who he's telling that to. When he's telling them, don't worry about your life, he's talking to people that live under Roman rule. Jews who have been subdued by the Romans. Romans that could kill you for, at any time if you're not a citizen for anything. Roman guards that would easily break your legs if you don't pay your taxes on time. An entire government that hates your entire people group. Pilate hated the Jews. Hated them. Hated them. He used to kill them and take the blood and mingle it with swine's blood and sacrifice it in the Roman temples. Those are the people that Jesus is saying, like, don't sweat tomorrow. It's going to be okay. So when we have fear, we have to realize, number one, we we live in an incredibly blessed age that probably all of us are going to eat three times. All of us probably have some sort of shelter to go home to. The government's probably going to leave us alone for the most part unless we do something radical. We live an incredible life. And so, when I experience fear about losing part of what I think I need, I need to realize that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If the dollar tanks, does God become poorer? I love Psalm 55 where he says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. If I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I love that verse. God doesn't become poor with the economy. It doesn't get harder for him to provide with the economy. We have to get rid of our estimation of how God works. We have to move beyond our resources. If we're experiencing fear, it's because we're relating our current state or possible state based on what we can do in our own resources. That's what fear is. Whereas we need to come to the conclusion that, though he slay me, I'll trust him. If I die tomorrow, it'll be okay. It'll be great for me, because I'll be with Jesus. He can take care of my family. He's really rich. He's really smart. He's a good dad. Right? There's nothing that can come our way that, that he can't handle. So whether it's social pressure, fiscal pressure, physical suffering, whatever it might be, the result of, of not curtailing fear, not... Interceding in our minds, not taking the step to reject fearful thoughts, is what we see happen to Peter. And every, almost every failure we see out of Peter was a result of fear. And so God is calling us away from fear. And 1 John where He tells us this He says, he, he tells us that fear has torment because it speaks of punishment. And it's, it's, it's in, in light of our relationship with God. He says, but we don't have to have that fear because Christ paid for our sin. So God's not condemning me today. He's not not trying to trash me today. I don't have spiritual fear in that sense because I'm accepted through Christ. And I don't have to have physical fear in this world. And I don't have to have physical fear, fear about people that are walking in disobedience and they come along and they share a perspective that's crazy destructive, but they hold it because of a millennia of tradition and ignoring God. They're going to do what they're going to do you know what? We get to keep walking with God. So the Lord loves you. You're going to be okay. Legit. You're going to be all right. You no, know, Regardless of what happens. Because He's working and He's blessing. And if you're going through suffering right now, the question to ask is not, how do I get out of this? Although I understand the temptation. The question is, what do I get out of this? I don't want to get out of it. I want to get something out of it. I want, I want to learn from this. I want to see God's fidelity in my life. I want to see his promises come true. So, I wish we knew the end. Evidently, Peter keeps walking with the Lord, right? He keeps walking with the Lord, and and, uh, he ends up getting crucified upside down with his wife. We know that from from extra-biblical history. Peter's last words were, um, well, tradition and history tell us that Peter's last words were, be strong, woman. That's not woman like, I know in our society, if you say woman, it's like this patriarchal, Dis or something. It's not that. It was the idea of looking at his wife as she was being crucified with him, telling her to be strong as he perished. So he ran his race. He was all right. He ended up in heaven. And uh, we'll end up in the same place as we follow Christ. Father, thank you for your great patience and kindness to us. Thank you, Lord, for these exceeding and precious promises that we have. And Lord, thank you for all the encouragement that later on Peter gives us in his letters about grace and your kindness and your plan. We pray, Lord, that you would be exalted in our life. And where we're looking at fear, when we're being influenced by fear, would you please wake us up by your Holy Spirit? Alert us, strengthen us that we might reject those thoughts and actions that, are, that come out of fear, knowing that you will preserve us, that you're the Lord. And that you're the Lord Almighty. And that you have uh, never done something wrong. You've never left one of your people hanging. Uh, but Lord, that you work all things together for good. For those that love you and those who are called into your purpose. So thanks for your promises. May we move forward to be a little more like Jesus this week. And we pray for supernatural opportunities to share with people. To love people. Supernatural opportunities for people to encourage us also. And that that, uh, your body would be built up uh, this week. We ask that you'd come swiftly. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you guys.